Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Oh, how the snow has snowed. My window paints a yard of frost. Oh, how the snow has snowed. What is this will to live my most despite this pain in me, in me? And all the ponds lie frozen. My soul is dark. Where do I live? Where do I go? All my hope lies frozen. I am the new Norway from which fair skies have disappeared. Mourn, you February birds. Mourn the evil chill of all. Mourn, you February birds. Mourn my tears and mourn my roses up in the boughs of the juniper tree. Oh, how the snow has snowed. My window panes a yard of frost. Oh, how the snow has snowed. What is this will to live my most with all this pain in me, in me? That's Mark DiSeverio. He stands in a grove on a freezing cold day on the outskirts of Hamilton, Ontario. Beyond that, a field, a busy road, a Tim Hortons, a big bear food mart. Driving in these drab suburban environments, you just never know. Perhaps, hidden in that nearby stand of white pines, a poet is declaiming. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Mark is a poet. He's also a translator. That poem, Winter Evening, is his rendering of a work written 125 years ago, in French. It's called Soir d'hiver. And though Mark is one of the most recent Anglophone interpreters of Soir d'hiver, he's not the most recent. There are others. Ah, how the snow did snow. My window is a garden of frost. Ah, how the snow did snow. how the snow it has snowed. What good is a flicker of life when compared to my woe, to my woe? What a thing is the spasm of living with all the woe that I know, that I know. The original Soir d'hiver became one of Canada's best-known poems among French speakers. Ah, comme la neige a neigé. Ma vitre est un jardin de givre. Ah, comme la neige a neigé. Qu'est-ce que le spasme de vivre à la douleur que j'ai, que j'ai. Émile Nelligan est mort. Émile Nelligan is indeed dead. He stopped writing in 1899, but the Montreal poet had a rebellious spirit, and it refused to die. Today, his spirit's will to live its most finds expression in people like Marc de Severio, people who feel moved to revive Nelligan, translating his works again in new ways, or, as others do, drawing on Nelligan's work to compose an opera, a ballet, a painting. The tale of Émile Nelligan, his poetry, his life, his afterlife, gets picked up now by Ideas producer Tom Howell. I was speaking with a professor in New Brunswick, and she was telling me about this place called Montreal and what it was like there 125 years ago. 
the battle over what to write, how to write, what literature should look like, how it should be read and by whom, you know, was really important. This is what she wanted me to understand in order to get the significance of Emil Nelligan's arrival on the scene in 1896. And the key point is, this past is a foreign country, a place where... What to write, how to write, how it should be read... ...are for some bizarre reason held to be... ...really important. I mean, can we even imagine such a place today? We must. And so I asked... Andrea Sabaisky ...to come and help us do this, because she's known for her ability to... ...teach and do research in comparative Canadian literature at the University of Moncton in New Brunswick. So, Montreal, Quebec, late 1800s, a place where what a person thought about poetry finally mattered. Why was this? Literature became increasingly polarized as the Catholic Church clamped down on the circulation of print culture, especially in the last half of the 19th century, when literacy rates were rising. The Catholic Church would have promoted a more patriotic poetry The 19th century is known as the century of nations. So this was a poetry that was meant to inspire individual and collective feelings of belonging to the group, to celebrate historic battles, for example, French victories from the Seven Years' War a century earlier, or it sought to mythologize historical figures or to evoke the local landscape, snowy scenes or or maple trees. But this local landscape was imbued with a patriotic sentiment. And for an example of this sort of thing... A poet named Octave Crémazy was basically Quebec's first national poet. Cue the blazing patriotism. Yes, this is a bit hissy. It's a recording of a musical setting of Octave Crémazy's most famous poem, Le Drapeau de Carillon, and it was recorded in 1905 and preserved by Libraries and Archives Canada. So I think we should just be pleased it exists at all. about a flag, the very one that would later morph into Quebec's Fleur de Lisée. But back when Cremazy was writing, it was known as the Flag of Carrion. The place, not the luggage. And the character in the song is announcing his plans to die, imminently, next to this flag. A declaration that pleased local Catholic authorities. The bishop loved it, the priests and the school teachers praised it and taught it. They maybe didn't know much about art, but they knew what they liked. And dying bathed in love for one's country, almost literally wrapping oneself in the flag, this was good stuff. But there was another kind of poetry, a modern variety. This was the bad stuff. And not just bad, wicked, evil, ruinous to the soul of Quebec. A liberal blasphemy against which the Bishop of Montreal himself waged a very personal war. For instance, he stepped in to prevent a Catholic burial happening for a man who'd been a member of a library where bad books could be borrowed. A man named Joseph Guibord 
And the story doesn't end here. In fact, it just begins here because his widow did not take this news line down and she hired two lawyers. It took five years for this case to make its way through the courts. But in the end, in 1874, it was decided that Gibor should be buried actually in a Catholic cemetery. In the meantime, he had been buried in a Protestant cemetery. So his body was exhumed. He was given a Catholic burial. And the Bishop of Montreal, Monseigneur Ignace Bourget, did not take this news lying down himself, and he um, deconsecrated the ground in which Gibor was buried in. So, wow. really, just the idea of clamping down on the circulation of print. Uh, you know, we don't really think of literature being involved in high-stakes games anymore at this point in Canada's history. An irony is, one of the biggest fans of the new poetry, in fact one of only a handful who ever appreciated Emil Nelligan's work, was a priest. The guy was leading a double life, using a fake name to work as a literary reviewer, editor and publisher by night. And when he got caught, well, everyone heard what happened to him. He had to leave the church because his superiors were really upset that he was handling this like heretical work and then goes into exile because of it. I mean, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. I mean, it's like a, it's a movie. It's like two movies. Carmen Starnino talking there. We'll meet him properly later. So this was a time when writing literary verse was pretty cool. And uh, I don't know what... Uh, was there anything you'd like? Not all of them are good to read, you know, for yeah. various reasons. Sometimes an explanation is required. This is Ian Allaby. Author of Selected Verse of Emile Nelligan, a book of translations of some of Emile Nelligan's best poems. Ian's book came out in 2023, making him, at the time of recording, the most recent published translator of the Enfant Terrible and Poète Maudit, Emile Nelligan. I don't think this is a person that I would like, you know. Um, he, he might be a real somebody who tough to handle. Because... Because he was a nervous wreck sort of thing. Uh, and because he's, his style was to be a, a poet modi, which is sort of like in our era, we might say a punk, you know, a, a punk poet or something like that. And um, I guess I consider myself not a punk, you know. <laughs> Emile Nelligan was born on Christmas Eve, 1879. In 1897, he was a good-looking and unruly 17-year-old high school dropout, a long record of truancy behind him, and he showed up in Montreal's poetry scene with a chip on his shoulder and no qualms about saying so. So I hope you're ready to hear some of this filth. Here's Ian reading his translation of one of Emile's early rock and roll numbers. Okay, Villanelle violin. A Villanelle is a country dance. In the valley breeze where the moonlight glows, come all ye blonde bells and brown-haired bows, where the fiddle plays and the woodwind blows, dance the villanelle. Sweet perfumes the fields on you bestow, come kindle your joy in the bonfire's glow. Be merry about it, by leaps and bounds go, dance the villanelle. The old folks are here on an oaken seat, with tears in their eyes they mark every beat, as you brush right past on your joyful feet. Dance the villanelle. Go to it gaily, may the moon shine bright. Let it paint your brows with its shimmering light. 
this feast of St. John, dance into the night, dance the villanelle. I don't want to prejudge anybody else's experience of that poem, but for me, it is a little like listening to raunchy hits from the 1950s. One can be told that it seemed diabolical at the time, but it's very hard to viscerally feel that sense of, oh no, he didn't just do that, that apparently was once front and center. Now, assuming you weren't too shocked by the villanelle, let's move on to another edgy Emil Nelligan piece. Listener discretion is advised. How about the rondelle to his pipe? Okay, I could do that. Okay, should I start now? Yeah, go ahead. All right, this is an example of a Nelligan rondelle, and it's called Rondelle to My Pipe. I'll put my feet up to the fire, and beer in hand, my finest pipe, we're buddies of the broody type, we'll share a dream safe from winter's ire. Against me, heaven holds some gripe and crowns my woes with flu so dire. I'll put my feet up to the fire, and with our beer we'll dream, old pipe. Death will come, the time is ripe, this earthly hell must soon expire. And when I'm sent to Satan's shire, I'll sit and smoke with that old type and put my feet up to the fire. Good for him, taking a positive attitude to the future for once. We're laughing at that because Emil Nelligan's poems are, for the most part, extremely sad. Canada's Anne Carson translated two of them, Funeral Marches and Night Confession. She published them both in the London Review of Books, along with a note, and the note is well put. Carson said, The poems are black stabs at winter and transcendence, not just sad. He seems a sort of vesper of himself. By the way, a vesper is an evening prayer in Catholicism. And Carson goes on to say, Maybe some people are born into the evening of their life, and although they remember a morning and an afternoon, they do not live it. They are already far on in the shadows. I think this is a fairly accurate description of Nelligan's vibe. He's often grieving over a childhood that seems fairy-like and mythical. And when he's not doing that, he's obsessing over the tragic death that's sure to come. That's his preoccupation, of course. Now, it's not unusual for a teenage guy to be preoccupied with, with death, uh, but he, he was a bit extreme in that respect. But for all his chaotic moodiness, Émile Nelligan wrote using the prettiest and neatest of classic verse forms, the villanelle, the rondelle, and the sonnet. I like that type of poetry. I have to say that. I like music and poetry. I'm, I miss it. In the free verse universe that we live in, I... I miss the kind of music that poetry could convey. Sweet perfumes the fields on you bestow. Come kindle your joy in the bonfire's glow. Be merry about it. By leaps and bounds go. Dance the villanelle. There were problems with, uh, with fixed form poetry and rhyming poetry and so on. It could become tedious, you know, and it could limit the possibilities of expression, which is one reason why free verse took off. But in my heart, I do think poetry should have music in it. When I uh, encountered Nelligan's poetry, I guess that's what I picked up on. It rhymed and it was musical. And it... One thing about rhyme and structure is you can see that it involves work on the part of the poet. Whereas free verse, I'm, I'm not saying free verse writers don't write and rewrite and work on this word. And you, I'm, not, I'm not saying they don't put a lot of work into it, but it's not as visible somehow. And it's not as easy for the public to talk about it either. 
Uh, but this type of poetry, it seems to me, should be retained as one of our types of poetry. It should not be forgotten. Emil Nelliga is not well known and is in danger of being forgotten among English-speaking Canadians. However, among French-speaking Canadians, it's very unlikely that he'll be forgotten anytime soon. And that's thanks in large part to a handful of his best poems written in the last year that he was active as a poet. This was 1899, just three years after his highly promising arrival on the Montreal scene. Give me evening and winter now, seeing as you're already. All right, let me see. There might be something that needs explaining, though. Evening and winter is Ian Allaby's translation of Soir d'hiver, Emile Nelligan's best-known poem. Norway. Norway is the thing. All right, so this poem is called Evening and Winter. Uh, It will mention Norway, and the importance of Norway to Nelligan was that it was the land's end, the northern land's end in Europe. And uh, Nelligan very often had the point of view of somebody European. He was oriented very much towards French literature. But, of course, he's writing this in Montreal on a snowy February evening. Ah, how the snow did snow. My window is a garden of frost. Ah, how the snow did snow. What a thing is the spasm of living with all the pain that I know that I know. All the ponds lie frozen dead. My soul is dark. Where am I? Where to go? All my hopes lie frozen dead. I am the new Norway, whence the fair skies have fled. Weep, birds of February, at the evil vibration in things. Weep, birds of February. Weep for my roses. Weep for my tears on the boughs of the juniper tree. Ah, how the snow did snow. My window is a garden of frost. Ah, how the snow did snow. What a thing is the spasm of living with all the woe that I know that I know. I first learned about the poem Soir d'hiver from a YouTuber named Geneviève. Salut tout le monde, c'est Geneviève, votre prof de français. Cette semaine, on a une capsule un peu spéciale. On va regarder le poème le plus connu de ce qui est probablement le plus célèbre poète québécois, Émile Nelligan. As you may have caught there, Geneviève is your French teacher. She's Geneviève Breton and she makes video capsules teaching Quebec culture and language to anglophones, allophones and a fair number of francophone Quebecers too. Donc, ben, je m'appelle Geneviève Breton, je suis la créatrice de ma prof de français, qui est une entreprise qui a pour mission d'aider les immigrants, plus particulièrement les immigrants qui choisissent le Québec, mais les, les Québécophiles ou les francophiles en général, à mieux comprendre les Québécois. For the benefit of those of us still working on our French, let's hear the rest of Geneviève's comments in translation. For me, it was important to tackle this poem because my impression is it's the most important, most known Québécois poem. Émile Nelligan is without any doubt the best-known Québécois poet, so I felt it was important for my listeners to hear this poem spoken about. I asked Geneviève to read us Soir d'hiver using the actual words that Émile Nelligan wrote. Ah, comme la neige a neigé. Ma vitre est un jardin de givre. Ah, comme la neige a neigé. Qu'est-ce que le spasme de vivre à la douleur que j'ai, que j'ai. Tous les étangs gisent gelés. Mon âme est noire. Où vis-je? Où vais-je? Tous ces espoirs gisent gelés. Je suis la nouvelle Norvège d'où les blonds ciels s'en sont allés. Pleurez, oiseaux de février, au sinistre frisson des choses. Pleurez, oiseaux de février. Pleurez mes pleurs, pleurez mes roses. 
aux branches du genévrier. Ah, comme la neige a neigé! Ma vitre est un jardin de givre. Ah, comme la neige a neigé! Qu'est-ce que le spasme de vivre à tout l'ennui que j'ai, que j'ai? She went on to tell me about the sounds in that poem, and I'm going to leave this next bit untranslated because I think it's pretty clear what she's saying. Ça glisse. Donc, pour moi, moi ça, me rappelle, ça m'évoque beaucoup la glace. Tous les étangs gisent gelés. Où vis-je, où vais-je? Tous ces espoirs gisent gelés. Ça, ça, ça crisse un peu comme la neige sous les pas. Pleurer, oiseau de février, au sinistre frisson des choses. Donc, il joue beaucoup avec les airs, branches du genévrier. C'est la, ça me rappelle la glace. For her, the sounds evoke ice. Une des choses qui est très, très intéressante sur One le of the interesting things in terms of language is he breaks a rule of grammar. In French, all the verbs for describing weather are impersonal. Ce sont des verbes impersonnels. Il pleut, il neige. It rains, it snows. The it doesn't refer to a person. The it essentially doesn't exist. There's a film about the life of Nelligan, and it shows this scene where he reads this poem to his fellow poets, and they start laughing at him. <laughs> de la neige qui neige, tu <laughs> entendu? Je neige, tu neige, tu neige. Pourquoi pas? Parce que lui, il vient ajouter un, un sujet. Qui est-ce? He just added a subject. Who has snowed? The snow has snowed. Well, you can't do that if you're following the rules of grammar. But he did it. Mais lui, il le fait. Puis, en fait, selon moi, c'est, c'est un peu ça la, la définition. In my opinion, that's kind of the definition of a poet or artist. Generally speaking, it's someone who can push the limits, cross the line, escape the normal in order to create, go further, innovate. So it's a nice, intriguing bit of language. C'est vraiment intéressant sur le plan de la langue à ce point-là. I asked Genevieve where she gets her impression that this is the best-known Québécois poem. J'ai fait un petit sondage à gauche, à droite dans mon entourage, puis c'est des gens qui sont... I did a poll of my social circle, people who are not big poetry fans. And when I asked who's Émile Nelligan, everyone said he's a Québécois poet. And when I asked, give me one line he wrote, They all said, ah, how the snow has snowed. It really shows how everyone comes across Nelligan somewhere in their schooling. I think it's in the popular culture now. Several stand-up comics have made it part of their act, people with really big audiences. That shows that they expect everyone to get the reference. One of her favorite examples of someone doing this is André Sauvé. Comme un neige neigé. Une vitre est un ardent de givre. Par exemple, une fois, il le lit au complet. For example, in one case, he totally removed all the ah sounds. Un douleur que gige, que gige. Celui-là, j'avais enlevé les ah. Après ça, il... Then he did it as quickly as possible, timing himself with a stopwatch. Then he goes, yes, like he's won a world championship. It's totally absurd. It's absurd. Tabarnak! 
Le plus drôle, la variation qui m'a le plus fait. The funniest variation that most made me laugh was when he put swear words into it with a really strong Quebec joual pronunciation. Translating Nelligan into curse words is kind of apropos because he's often been called Canada's cursed poet or to use the French term, poète maudit. Le poète maudit, c'est une expression qui fait référence un peu euh, à l'artiste incompris euh, qui It's vit an expression en... referring to the misunderstood artist living at the edge of society. Think of all the clichés of poets you've seen in films. Someone flirting with madness, intensely creative, often self-destructive, drinking, abusing drugs puis que souvent des comportements autodestructeurs qui viennent avec donc consommation de drogue et d'alcool, abus de drogue et d'alcool. It's usually an artist whose value will only be recognized after they die. Des artistes qui seront pas reconnus à leur juste valeur. Someone will come across their work and say wow, this is amazing. That's kind of the cliché. C'est donc génial. C'est un peu ça le cliché du poète maudit. A cliché, yes, but in Emil Nelligan's case, it was literally his life story. On Ideas, you're listening to The Passion of Émile Nelligan, Canada's saddest poet, by Ideas producer Tom Howell. We're a podcast, and since 1965, we've been a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, in North America, on Sirius XM, in Australia, on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. However you listen, I hope you enjoy what you're hearing. You can let us know what you think by writing to ideas at cbc.ca. I'm Nala Ayad. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. If we were to randomly pick up a book of Anédigan's poems, we wouldn't necessarily be immediately struck by the newness of his poetry. Andrea Sibaisky of the University of Moncton. He writes about loss, anguish, and solitude. He writes about his state of mind, about his emotional state. And in this way, he reflects exactly what we think that poetry should do and has always done. Many of us sit down to write a poem when we're trying to make sense of difficult emotions or, or, or reactions. But in the context of the late 19th century, Nédigan, along with other members of the so-called literary school of Montreal, broke new ground precisely by exploring the inner landscape of the mind. They were going against the grain of more orthodox views of what poetry should look like, should sound like, and what poetry's social role should be. Émile Nelligan wrote poems for three years. Then, before his 20th birthday, disaster struck. Émile Nelligan est mort. Émile Nelligan is dead. So begins the preface to his first book of poems. It was published in 1904. 
The writer of the preface was a priest and a poetry lover. This was a tricky combination at the time, since Quebec's Catholic authorities wanted to stamp out the new literary culture growing in Montreal. And there's a second notable point about that opening line from the preface. While the priest was writing it, Émile Nelligan was not dead. No matter that our friend had not closed his eyes, says the priest, all that we loved in him is gone. The story of Émile Nelligan's life is tragic. A famous Quebec playwright, Michel Tremblay, found the tale operatic. In 1990, Tremblay worked with composer André Gagnon, and they created Nelligan, the opera. On today's episode of Ideas, Tom Howell rediscovers Émile Nelligan, his poems, his tragedy, and his afterlife, not just in Quebec, but among English-speaking Canadians elsewhere in Canada. Square Saint-Louis is a very pretty spot in the heart of Montreal. It has a fountain, it has beautiful 19th century apartment buildings on three sides, big trees everywhere, Pigeons, squirrels, lovers, a tiny cappuccino place that's almost never open. In New York, there's an advocacy group called Project for Public Spaces, and they say Square Saint-Louis is the closest thing to a European neighborhood square you'll find this side of the Atlantic. When Emile Nelligan wrote his poems, the park was brand new, and apparently teenage Emile liked to wander over here and mull things over. So the first job is just to introduce yourself, say who you are and where we are. Oh, so um, my name is Carmen Sternino. We are in Square Saint-Louis, in front of the monument to Emile Nelligan. And we're actually watching a little tour group that is assembled here. Today is November 18th, which is the day that Nelligan died. Back in 1941, long after he had stopped writing. Yeah. Yeah. Long after he stopped writing, yeah, decades after. Carmen is a poet, editor, and publisher in Montreal. How would you characterize his life story? Well, it's funny because I think poetry has a lot of really intriguing origin stories, but I don't know of any quite like Nelligan's. I mean, like, he, he's born to an Irish dad and a Francophone mom, sort of like the bastard child of Canadian poetry. Two solitudes kind of fuse into one. Interested in music because of his mom, who introduces him to all sorts of composers. And because of his father's insistence that he read English, he discovers Poe. And the two kind of work together, this whole music and gothic, into this voice of his. Yeah, I mean, that'd be the short answer to how he got to where he, he did. The other thing that is really cool, I mean, I mean, I guess we, I say the word cool, but like his life was pretty tragic. Three years. Like, most of the work we understand is his was written between the years of 16 and 19. So the guy's a teen prodigy, like an adolescent genius. Um, then he cracks, and then he sort of drifts in an asylum until he dies in 61. And his beloved mother visits him only once. 
What's the story there? I don't know. I mean, it's sad. It's sad. This monument to Emile Nelligan is a bronze bust. You see his bouffant hairstyle, his far-off look, and the jaunty high collars of his jacket. We have this image here of him, and this is like the, the branding around Emile Nelligan is this like, you know, beautiful adolescent. In fact, Michel Tremblay praises him as this like beautiful adolescent, and he, I think he has something about his Apollonian features. And that's the image we know of him, and I think he got very lucky because someone snapped that photo. Carmen means that the sculpture looks to be based on the one photographic portrait that exists of Émile Nelligan at his peak, from early 1899, when he wrote Soir d'Hiver. This picture captures him looking really like the cliché of a bohemian poet. It's the image used on any edition of his collected works. And that is the image we have of him. But there is another image that doesn't circulate as often. It was taken in 1920. And that's where he was deep into his asylum years. He had 20 years left before he died. He was in his 40s. And he doesn't look like that at all. He looks a bit more like Pablo Escobar. He does, yeah. Like these burning eyes, looking to the camera. He's got his arms sort of folded. Now that is the Nelligan no one really thinks about. We like this version of him. Um, We try not to think about the other version of him, even though the other version of him is the one that gives this version glamour. Earlier, Geneviève Breton mentioned there's a movie called Nelligan. It's a biopic from 1991, and it begins in the asylum. Emile Nelligan. Here is the adult, Nelligan, silent, trapped in shadows, at last fully in the hands of a Catholic institution. And in fact, Nelligan, the opera, begins pretty much the same way. So when Carmen says, That is the Nelligan no one really thinks about. It's not that no one mentions this part of his life. It's just not really fun to dwell on what he experienced beyond his adolescence. And in fact, that moment a few seconds ago when Carmen catches himself. The other thing that is really cool, I mean, I mean, I guess we, I say the word cool, but like his life was pretty tragic. That I really identify with, the tension between finding pleasure in the drama of Emil Nelligan's life and acknowledging the pain. Because once upon a time, Emil Nelligan was a real teenager. In fact, he lived about 120 meters away from where we're standing. And if you walk up Avenue Laval, you can see the window of his bedroom where he spent his sleepless nights feverishly writing dozens and dozens of beautifully over-the-top symbolic poetry about misery. Of course, by the summer of 1899, he may have been up because of the horrific visions and voices that tormented him constantly, oncoming signs of what seems to have been schizophrenia. I mean, this is the reason why I was so interested in Mark Di Severio's translation, which we published at VQ Press. Mark's sense of him was that Nilligan was the first one to actually, first Canadian, first poet maybe, certainly North America, to write about, at that time, to write about his neuroses, uh, suicide, uh, you know, suicidal inclinations, um, depression. Voices. Voices, hear voices. His famous poem, Vaso d'Or, is essentially about a, a shipwreck. The ship is, in fact, is like his sense of self, his, his, his happiness. Ship of gold. She was a massive ship, hewn in heavy gold, with masts that fingered heaven on seas unknown. Under redundant sun, with scattered hair, was proud, outspread Venus, bare. But then one night she hit the huge reef in waters where the siren sings, 
and this ghastly shipwreck tilted its keel to the depths of the chasm, that immutable tomb. She was a ship of gold, but her diaphanous flanks showed treasures over which the blasphemous sailors' spite and nausea and madness clashed. So, what has survived this flash of storm? What about my heart? Abandoned ship? Oh, still it sinks deep in dreams abyss. Yeah, he had it going on. Like, he just... But it just all slid away, you know? It's sad. He got diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was 19. And I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 19. We have a lot in common. That's why I wanted to... to uh, one of the reasons I want to translate him. I felt akin to him, you know? Quick editorial note here. When I met up with Mark, he'd been going through a difficult patch in his own mental health, and it didn't make sense to take on the stress of a radio interview. But he was able to read out loud from his book which is called Ship of Gold, The Essential Poems of Emil Nelligan. Carmen Starnino was his editor. Mark is someone who I feel sees Nelligan as a kindred spirit because his own art and needs to write poetry has kind of cost him to a little bit, I feel. But also oddly kept him alive, maybe. I think that's how he would see it too. I mean, we've had conversations about this. Yeah, I, th- I think on some level, for me... I've always been drawn to the, the Plaths and the Hughes and the... Um, meaning? Can you disagree? Yeah, meaning... Uh, people who, whose drive to write poetry comes out of a need to sort of harness energies and forces that can't be harnessed otherwise. It's a way of tapping into a kind of mythic, scriptural sense of what language is. I've always seen that as a kind of high watermark. I'm not sure I've ever achieved it. Um, but certainly, like, Maybe it's the relief of your wife and family you've never achieved. <laughs> Maybe. But, you know, it, there, is a, there is a cost to any kind of decision to pursue an art. There is a kind of selfishness to it, um, a need to separate yourself from others, and a need to pursue it even in the face of financial loss, career loss, societal loss. Like, there is there's certainly better things to do than spend your time writing sonnets, you know, or book-length poems mm-hmm. on, like, you know winter or whatever it is like on some level there is something deeply absurd about this need of ours to write poems i think nearly game redeems it a little bit when sees him and sees the, the kind of seismic effect he has had on quebec and you you think well this even even if i don't get to that point this is why one does it you're a part of this tradition something that can that has a kind of thunderbolt effect on a people. How did you come across him? I think the same way a lot of people do, which is like in a used bookstore. Yeah, it was unlike anything I had read. Nelly Gaon obviously appealed to me because of that doomed sensibility. I have to say, like, you know, now that I've read more of him, the work is extraordinary in French. It's a little uneven and extremely hard to translate into English. In French, it's it's... There's something ecstatic, something sort of incantatory. Once you carry it over into English, it feels hyperbolic, super saturated. Sometimes it could be hard to see what the value is. Could but just be an overwrought teenager. It could, yeah. And some of the work is. It's just really overwrought. But some of the more famous poems, like the Vassaudor and La Romance de Vain, the Romance of Wine, you can almost get a sense, if the translation is in sync, uh, enough get a sense of what it is that really excited his contemporaries also i hear or read <laughs> i hear he was a terrific reader like he was really good 
I think it was Romance de Vain was the one he read and then the crowd hoisted him up on his shoulders and took him home. Uh, that was his very last public appearance and then he broke down. Next, I would like to recite Le Romance de Vain or the wine song. All things mingle in the brilliance of gaiety and the chorus of the songbirds, like my sharded fancies, proclaim a prelude through my open window. O oh, beautiful evening, O oh, joyous May evening, an offish organ beats out cold monotonies, and sun rays, like purple swords, pierce the heart of the dying day. I am happy, I am happy. Pour red wine in the singing crystal, pour it again and forever, that I may forget the funerals of my days, the hate I feel for malevolent masses. I am happy, I am happy, viva la vin et l'ar. Oh no, I too had dreams of writing verses worth reciting, lines of distant autumn breezes passing in the fog. It's in the sphere of bitter jeers to be a heartful poet, object of scorn, born to be fathomed by only the moonlight and storms. Girls, I drink to you who laugh at my path, where sublimity smiles with open arms, and, above all, I drink to you, moody-browed men who despise me, who shall not shake my held-out hand. While the gloryful heavens are flooded with stars, while the psalm now resounds for the spring's next revival, I have not cried for the dying of day, and I grope forth through my gloomy youth. I am happy, I am happy, hooray for these nights in May, and I am madly happy sans the drunkenness. Could it be that I'm happy with living? Is my heart finally healed from loving? I am happy, I am happy. The clocks now strike, wind smells of night, and while wine flows in the ray-flinging waves, I am happy, so happy with my booming belly laughs, so happy I fear I will cry. Ça faisait partie du plaisir de, de lire ces poèmes-là dans la solitude, de, de baigner sans doute dans cette mélancolie. This is Pascal Brissette, a prophet McGill. He just said part of the pleasure of reading Emile Nelligan is to do so in solitude and just bathe in the melancholy of it. Le vaisseau d'or, Emile Nelligan. Ce fut un grand vaisseau taillé dans l'or massif. Ses mâts touchaient l'azur sur des mers inconnues. La cyprine d'amour, cheveux épars, chair nue, s'étalait à sa proue au soleil excessif. Excuse me, French. Pascal is the author of a scholarly work, Nelligan in All His States. He discovered Nelligan at the right time, while he was still an adolescent himself. Oh, mon Dieu. Émile Nelligan a été très important pour l'adolescent ténébreux. Very important writer for a moody adolescent. Un peu maudit à sa façon que j'étais. A bit accursed as I was. C'était des poèmes qu'on lisait pour soi. Cela étant dit, euh, rapidement, ce sont des poèmes également qui incitent à écrire. Poems that you read for yourself and soon poems that get you writing. Alors oui, j'ai commis quelques poèmes à l'année ligant que j'offrais bien sûr à, 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 mes jeunes, à, à mes jeunes compagnes. I committed several poems in an elegant style and I certainly showed these to my... Young fellows. Alors, donc, la, la solitude était brisée par, euh, par le partage, euh, disons, euh, le partage euh, des jeunes gens, oui. The solitude's kind of broken by sharing it with other young people. And Emile Nelligan did that too. He was a mopey teenager up in his room, but he also made friends and took part in public poetry readings. He even won a few loyal fans who really got him. A young liberal literary insurgency 
getting their hands on books from revolutionary France, the works of Victor Hugo and Baudelaire, exactly the people that the Bishop of Montreal had sworn to stop Canadians from reading. C'est toute une jeunesse, c'est pas seulement élégance, c'est toute une jeunesse qui. Uh, We're going to need a better translator for this part. Qui uh, idolâtrait la, la France. It was all the youth, not just Nelligan. All these youth who idolized France from afar and had only one goal to leave for France, to spend months at least, or years. Young people who read books, who truly wanted to find themselves and reconnect with French culture. Nelligan's style of writing, very symbolic, not too concerned with whether everything makes literal sense, this was following the example of a group of Parisian writers from the recent decades, Baudelaire, Arthur Rimbaud, Rimbaud being one of the original poets Modi, his elder colleague Paul Verlaine had recently coined the term to praise Rimbaud and a few others. He was doing it to contrast them with the types of writers who go about with society's blessing. Anyway, as Ian Allaby tells me, Emile was... To a certain extent, imitating his French poetry heroes. There's a story of a Parisian critic who I guess had come over here or must have been in Montreal and what's the story there? Demarchi uh, his uh, breakdown in 1899 is Nelligans. often portrayed as stemming from a bad bad review he got in a Monde d'Illustre uh, from a critic who went by the name of Demarchi now uh, there's not much known by, about Demarchi and it has even been claimed that it was a nom de plume of somebody else, somebody who might even have known uh, Nelligan. But all of that speculation, like around Nelligan, there's a lot of speculation. We think this guy was French? French, French? From Paris, French from yeah. Paris, that's right, which would be one of the things that would wound Nelligan deeply because uh, his, his great ambition was to produce a book of poetry in Paris. That was what he was focused on, really, for much of his, uh, his poetic existence. Demarchi thought, or at least wrote, that Nelligan was uh, a mediocre poet. Ne Nelligan belonged to a club which was called Literary Club of Montreal. And they had uh, open sessions. The public was invited. That was where Nelligan, for at least half a dozen times, presented his poetry. And each time, as far as I know, Demarchi gave him a poor review. But uh, anyway, it so happens that in March of 1899, one of Demarchi's bad reviews of Nelligan seemed to cut more deeply than ever and sent uh, Nelligan into a tailspin. And for the uh, subsequent summer, Nelligan's uh, psychological condition deteriorated. And by August, Nelligan was in, a, um, in an asylum. Was Demarchi right? Was he a mediocre poet? No, at the time has proven that Nelligan was not mediocre. Demarchi's point was that uh, Nelligan borrowed from here and there, I say he was a teenager, basically. Of course he's borrowing. But that doesn't ruin the poetry at all. You know. Blaming Emile's mental health breakdown on a snobby, dismissive Parisian critic adds human drama and meaning. It makes it a more satisfying story for why Canada was robbed of the great poems Nelligan might have gone on to write in adulthood. Alors, le méchant qui va interner, qui va être la cause de cette folie ou de cet internement, donc va, va changer. This is Pascal Brissett saying that the bad guy, or the force driving Emile into madness, then locking him away for the rest of his life, this varies with who's telling the story. On raconte à nouveau son histoire, mais on la raconte un peu différemment en faisant jouer le rôle du méchant à celui-ci, à celui-là. Donc on peut lire 
l'idéologie dominante d'une époque à travers la manière dont elle a parlé de Nelligan. Essentially, you could read the dominant ideology of a time period by looking at how they were telling Nelligan's story and blaming this person or that person for his downfall. And interestingly, Michel Tremblay's opera plot and the movie about Émile Nelligan both came out in 1991, right after the collapse of the Meech Lake Accord, very much in the build-up to the second referendum on Quebec independence. And in both plots, they pin the blame pretty squarely on Emile's English-speaking dad. Okay, go on, show me what a man you are! Right back! Don't you just stand there and me back! The first person in Nelligan's life who will play the role of bad guy, who's going to imprison him, who's going to sign that document committing him, it's the father, the Anglophone father. Got me! You come back when you found yourself a job as a dream cleaner, a rubbish collector, a coal man, anything! Old Mr. Nelligan finally loses his patience and he gets Emile locked up in the Saint Benoit Asylum, run by the Brothers of Charity. What you see really is the Anglophone father using the power of the church to put him away because Emile disturbs him. Le rôle du méchant dans l'histoire de Nelligan, il est d'abord joué par un Anglo, donc euh, c'est ouais. <laughs> We are the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, you are the bad guys again. You. Uh... <laughs> In the myth of Emil Nelligan, the poet becomes a symbol and a martyr. He's not just someone who sacrificed everything for his art. He's somebody who was sacrificed. When talking about Nelligan, his story, and those who locked him up, you're also talking about Quebec's rise and the sacrifice that was needed to rise into modernity in literature. Accède à la modernité en littérature. When the École littéraire turned its back on the orthodox, patriotic, and didactic poetry that defined French-Canadian literature in the last half of the 19th century, it really turned its back on, on tradition. We're back to Andrea Sabaisky and what she was trying to tell me about literature mattering. The École littéraire, in my view, anticipates the arrival onto the scene of the artistic movement of the 1940s known as Les Automatistes, the Automatists, who published a famous manifesto in 1948 known as the Refus Global, translated into English as the Global Refusal. And this manifesto rejected the influence of the Catholic Church, not only on art and literature, but also on French-Canadian self-understanding. And one of the lines from the Refus Global that has always stuck in my mind since I first read it was the line, to hell with holy water and the French-Canadian toque. I, I, I can't wear a toque ever since and I can't... What do they have against the toque? I know, <laughs> the poor toque. They're rejecting not only the Catholic Church, but, but traditional imagery on French-Canadian self-understanding. And so I see the... École littéraire as paving the way for the arrival onto the scene of the global refusal, which in its turn paved the way for the quiet revolution of the 1960s. Today, Emile Nelligan's story could be symbolic of something else. 
I mean, this is supposedly one of Canada's quote-unquote most famous poets, and in my social circle anyway, almost no one seems to have heard of him. I mean, I think he should be known from coast to coast. I think one of the reasons he's not known is the two solitudes issue. But there's a lot of French-Canadian stuff that is just not known in English Canada. Mm -hmm. But English Canada, at that time, very much oriented towards London, now very much oriented towards L.A. or, or New York. A and I think um, that it might get worse. I don't think that there's a chance that we'll discover French-Canadian culture no. and absorb it. Really? And I, I don't think that'll happen I th because... In English Canada, the demographics are changing, and there might not be that much interest anymore in consulting the uh, Quebec situation. So, personally, I, you know, I'm not optimistic. It would be great if we found a new love for, for uh, Quebec. Maybe they have to threaten to separate again. Well, wow. yeah. <laughs> And there is no figure like him in Canadian letters anywhere. And so... Yeah, you can understand why I mean, he's become such a mythic figure. I think all national literatures need somebody to remind us that at its heart, poetry is unpredictable, volatile. And he does that. Like one more, and then I'm done. <laughs> I know you're getting probably a little. Oh, is that okay? Okay, I'll do, I'll do a quick one. Okay. Yeah. Glooms. <clears throat> My spirit's sorrow slings her lengthy veils. The cawing of the crows is latent now. I dream that golden ship with all its sails, sunk in starry seas, were forever spent. Oh, when will I, like a crucifix, push out between my fingers the old and dear peace whose voice and song I never hear rise upon this groaning life of doubt? I would like one lengthy dream for my whole soul under a cypress tree to lie in a corner grave, my beautiful childhood tomb, but I can't. I feel cheerless arms at loom they raise me to the real, whose torches fumes embrace in the dead of night my freakish glooms. Thanks, Paul. That's fantastic. You are listening to The Passion of Emile Nelligan. Canada's Saddest Poet, by Ideas producer Tom Howell. Thanks to Stefan Basque at CBC Moncton. Ideas is a broadcast and a podcast. If you like the episode you just heard, check out our vast archive. There are 300 past episodes there for you to choose from. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Acting senior producer, Lisa Godfrey. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.